Good evening. Uh, welcome to the latest installment of Building the Scottish State. And I have with me again, Councillor Graham Campbell to speak about an article he, he was interviewed for recently, uh, particularly about slavery. Uh, so first of all, thank you for being with us this evening, Graham. Good evening, Mark, and thank you for bringing me on again. Absolutely. Uh, before we get to this, the issue of slavery, I'd just like you to uh, talk about your candidacy for the Holyrood elections. Well, I haven't formally, formally publicly announced it, but I don't think it's a great secret that having stood in the Edinburgh West, tested for that constituency seat, uh, I can confirm that I am going for the Lothians list. Uh, I think that's uh, you know the contribution I want to make is to obviously get us some more people in Edinburgh on that list and get that majority. Uh, but yeah, I've done, sorry, I'm going for that list. Okay, good. Congratulations. <laughs> and what, what is campaigning going to look like in this context in the, with, with COVID and everything? Uh, very much online. Um, I can't imagine that we will have any real great outdoor campaigning. Uh, we might even only barely have postal campaigning. So it will be a very largely postal election, I suspect. Obviously, we hope that it, it will, people will be out on the streets in the spring, but I, I severely doubt it. There might not be much scope uh, for door-to-door -door campaigning, for sure. So I suspect it will be rather similar to some of the stuff we've already been doing online. All right. So now I'd like to uh, to get to the uh, the issue of slavery, because you, I'd be interested in just uh, hearing a little bit about your own family history and, and how that's been intertwined with slavery. Okay, well, my, my father is Jamaican, my mother is Grenadian. Uh, Grenada is a smaller island in the Caribbean, but both of them are sugar slave colonies. And uh, both sides of my family have this connection to what they call Caribbean slave plantation society. Mm -hmm. And in a plantation society, you have a, a class structure which is based in slavery, where the, the African people are enslaved and all the workforce. Uh, the lighter brown-skinned or indeed some, in some cases Asian communities. So we've had migrants from from China, from Iran, from Persia, from uh, India. They've often been the middle class, in the middle section. And then the, the white elite has been the land-owning, property-owning and slave-holding class, historically in, in Jamaica especially. Um, but 94% of the population is African Jamaican and then that small minority of all the minorities controls still to this day the eco economics. So plantation society affects your, your family. So in my case, my family was, you, you have a white branch of your family and a black branch of your family or shades in between. And my, my grandpa was in fact one of these white landowners in Grenada. Mm. And uh, so I met, met him in the 1880s as a young man growing up and trying to re rediscover the family connection and the roots. Mm. And it turned out he was quite a racist. <laughs> you know, he was born in Ireland and he married this English woman who was also a racist. And yet they lived in Grenada for 34 years before they ended up retiring and coming back to England. But it was interesting dealing with them because they had a racialized hierarchy within the family. They had black members of the family who were descended from the slaves. So okay. I was introduced to racism within my family from quite an early age. Uh, my dad's side is uh, Scottish Jamaican, and I actually don't really find out that until quite recently. But I was aware that obviously with a name like Campbell, we knew that obviously those names come from Scots who owned plantations, who knew therefore owned the people who worked on them and gave them their names. Uh, so I don't know what African heritage I've got. I have no way of knowing. The only way I can trace my ancestry on that side is through 
the slavery legacy. So um, I was aware that Campbell's a Scottish name, uh, but it didn't, I didn't really think about it too much until more recently, once I got involved in this work, you know, around mm. the slavery legacy. Um, and I've been reluctant to research it, to be honest, because I didn't want to knock my my love for the country, if you know what I mean. Of course, of course. I was reluctant, really, to find out. But then my dad told me when he when he turned 80, he told me a number of things. But first of all, he told me that his grandfather was actually Scottish, was mm -hmm. born in Scotland, came from uh, Fife, I believe. And he ended up running and managing the estate in the, the north of, of uh, Jamaica, where my dad was born and grew up. And uh, it turned out that on a Sunday, him and my uncle Carl, when they were kids, they would visit their grandfather on a Sunday. It was quite common in those days. If you had a, a rich relative, you would go and dress up in the Sunday best, read sections of the Bible to them to check that you were getting your schooling right. That was the thing you would do on a Sunday. And they would be collected in a car or in a horse cart, uh, and they'd be taken up from the village where the black people lived to the white man's house. And that's how they visited their grandpa. And the grandpa had three books that he impressed upon his, his uh, grandchildren. And they were Robert Burns's collection, mm -hmm. the Bible, and Shakespeare's collection. So every Jamaican school teacher has those three books <laughs> on their shelves. Mm -hmm. So my dad was always very aware of his Scottish connection. I didn't really realize this until he told me that when he came to London in the 19, late 50s, early 60s, when he came to London, he first got a job on the railways and early engineering, but then he got a job, first place was Royal Mail at Mount Pleasant in London, the King's Cross. It's literally just down the road from King's Cross. And you'd come there and you'd get a job. And who else was there trying to get a job? Irish and Scots people. So from the beginning, he was there coming with the Scots cohort in, into Royal Mail. And he spent his whole working life in Royal Mail, retired there in 1993. And he said that he'd always had an affinity for Scotland. Mm -hmm. He knew he was Scottish. He never told me this. It's stuff he'd never bothered to tell me. 15 years. Then he finally told me, oh, yeah, I've got this real affinity for Scotland. I've never been, but I want to come. Well, why, why, do you think, why do you think he was reluctant to talk about it? I'm not sure. I suppose he lives in England, so you know, he's still in Tottenham. And so he's still very, you know, obviously attached to Tottenham. He's lived there his entire life. He's raised a family now. And, uh, you know, he's... You know, it's not always popular to say that you're, you're pro-Scottish when you live in England. And so, um, yeah, it's, it was weird uh, to have lived here this long and then not really known. He was born in Tottenham? No, he's Jamaican. And did he come over as the wind as part Real of the Windrusher, yes. Yeah, okay. On the Windrush or what? I mean, is no, that... later, later. He came, I think, in 58. Mostly from, from the Caribbean? Uh, not only for the Caribbean, but I suppose it's a catch-all term now to, to describe every migrant from the Commonwealth countries who came. But obviously a lot of Caribbean people started coming from 48 onwards, and that was when we started to have immigration laws to stop us coming. You know, in fact, they designed, we now know that they designed the laws in those days to, you know, prior to 1948, everybody in the British Empire was a British citizen and could go anywhere. Yeah. It was only then in 1948 that they introduced Commonwealth Immigration Acts and then later in the 60s did the same and they were all designed to stop us coming.
to stop the, the white ones coming. I teach American history and I you know, really opened my eyes to you know, the British colonial period. And tell me about a little bit about the imperial history of Jamaica. When was it first colonized and were, was, were the plantations mostly sugar? Were there a lot of other commodities as well? Because it's known obviously for sugar for the most part. Tell me a little bit more about the colonial economy, imperialism there. Potted history. Okay, start with uh, 1492, Columbus, discovers the Americas, he lands in a place that people already live in and claims that he's the first person there. The Arawaks kind of look at him a bit strange and he doesn't decide to stay in Jamaica very long, but they still have a place called Discovery Bay where he discovered Jamaica. Uh, but uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese come first, they're followed by the Dutch. Okay, because Columbus first landed in Hispaniola, which is the Dominican Republic, right? I'm not sure which island he first discovered. It, it, there's a, there's a toss-up between uh, one of the Bahamian islands and uh, Hispaniola, but I, I don't know which one he came to first, but it, they're all discovered in the same voyage. But yes, he discovers these islands, and basically they start slavery, really, begins on, in, with sugar as, a, as the commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, but sugar plantations really begin in 1520 in Brazil. Portuguese, the okay. first people to start doing it. They're the ones who start doing it first with native peoples, the Spanish and Portuguese do that, and then they work out that the indigenous people start dying of the European diseases and don't last long being worked to death. So they have to import a population which can stand up to European diseases and be worked to death. And that was Africans, West Africans. So they start to be imported into Brazil. Uh, kidnapped there and then gradually as these islands which you know this the specific geography of being in the equator having rich fertile soil you can grow three crops of sugar a year so of course this becomes a very lucrative thing sugar is a very rare commodity in those days and gradually people make great wealth from it but it's not the only one jamaica was an island which was uh, when the english got into slave trading uh, uh, they capture these islands from the Spanish, first of all, in 1655, I think it is, that they capture okay. Okay. Yeah. Jamaica from the Spanish. And they gradually start capturing these islands from the French, the Dutch, and other people, develop a, a rival position to the French. So a lot of the big yeah, war that's between about the England same. and France was over these islands. Yeah, because that was about the same time that New York was taken from the, from the Dutch by the British. In fact, it's, it's very interesting on my grandmother's side, uh, they came over in 16 to New York in 1660 at when it was new when it was New Holland and New York was New Amsterdam and then I think it wasn't I think it was 1663 that it, British just took it as they as they do <laughs> as they want I've got a little kind of family history thing and maybe my ancestors wouldn't have you know, owned slaves but yep they owned slaves they killed Indians you know the whole works it's I found some I discovered some other things very interesting as well because I had a lot of Quaker in the 18 uh, in the 1830s and 40s they were among the the most foremost uh, abolitionists and uh and i have and i have um a great great grandfather who actually uh was very active in the abolitionist movement as part of the american missionary society and then one just after the civil war i think in like 1867 he helped found tufts university which was a seminary for for freed slaves and so and and which john lewis died recently he came from there and a lot of the civil rights movement was so you know I, I kind of feel a little better about my ancestry knowing that there were good people who tried to you really did and so you, your your point that you made in the the herald article was just that this needs to be taught about scott's role in uh -huh. in 
the slave trade. And, and, you, and you were mentioning that there's kind of an amnesia or, a, you know, kind of a, a reluctance of people to think that, oh, it wasn't us. You know, we were, we were just dragged along by the, by the British. Or... Scotland really enters this story because of one particular commodity, and that's tobacco. Tobacco is a North and South American product. It comes from there. So it begins to be transshipped using slave labor to uh, essentially create this commodity which is very valuable in Europe. Uh, the English cultivate it first, they, they bring it over, but Scots merchants get involved for the following reasons. Glasgow, being where it is, is about two weeks sailing time closer to North America and to the Caribbean than if you go from London. Trade winds favourably advantage you. Uh, Glasgow was also well placed because we had already got uh, ports like Port Glasgow and Greenock. It had a shipbuilding element just starting off. Uh, so Glasgow also has all these educated traders and people. And you know, Glasgow early on has traders of commerce, uh, educated doctors, ship surgeons accountants, booking clerks, uh, a developed culture around that, uh, being literate, helps greatly. And that gives Scots the skills to do the, the bookkeeping, the warehousing. In fact, Scots pretty much invent the tobacco warehousing system. The very concept of putting things in a warehouse, storing them, collecting the tobacco from local farmers, putting them in a storehouse, and then accumulating them to you know, drive up the price of that commodity. Well, Scots cornered that and the way their family relations worked, it would be uh, the relative that owned the capital in Glasgow, or the west of Scotland, who would run the business from here. They would then be a brother or a cousin would run the slaving operation off the west coast of Africa and base themselves there. And then there's the person who owns the plantation or runs the controls the plantation in the Caribbean of America. So Scots were physically and familiarly involved in the triangular trade in tobacco. Glasgow comes to dominate the tobacco trade. It, uh, more two thirds of Britain's tobacco trade was landed in Glasgow, not London. And, wow. you know, so Glasgow literally for about 50 years before the American Revolution dominates the tobacco trade and everybody in Eastern and Central Europe has got a tobacco habit because of Glasgow. But the key point prior to that, of course, is 1707. Because prior to that, Scotland didn't have, or the Scottish elite didn't have access to the English markets. They tried with the Darien experiment to establish their own colony, what's now Panama. They chose the right spot, but they just chose the wrong bit of it, and it was under Spanish control. The Spanish and the English between them made sure that the Scottish colony failed. But the Scots were trying to do what every other Western European nation was trying to do use the colonies to develop their economy and develop wealth because they'd heard stories of gold and everything and exotic people and goods and they wanted their share of it. But the country was bankrupted by the Darien experiment and in fact it was one of the major reasons why the Treaty of Union uh, went ahead because of course it bailed those guys out. That was one of its key clauses. I think it's uh, Article 4. It, it bails them out and compensates them for their losses in that trade and then gives them access to the English markets and to the English islands and from then on uh, Scots start to arrive in Jamaica and all the other English controlled islands yeah, okay. and these then become British controlled islands. Now the English have done uh, a thing called the slave code and what's important about that it was the first place in the empire where 
racialized discrimination is literally written down in law depriving black people of their human rights mm -hmm. that was in 16 i think 1630 in barbados okay. that was the first british island to have a, a constitution that actually deprived black people of rights so scotland when they're joining the union they're joining this english enterprise you know the English monarchists run a, a company called the Royal African Company of England. I've heard about that. Literally, the letters R-A-C-E, notice race, are stamped on their property, their enslaved African property. So that word, R-A-C-E, and who's, who's the biggest shareholder? King Charles II, <laughs> the King of England, right. restored to the throne. So, the, the monarch owns the biggest share and of course that was, that was around 1660 right uh, yeah. so so you you've got the monarch owning his, his share in the, the enterprise and elizabeth the first in england had done the same uh you know paid riley and uh, drake to raise the spanish uh, slaving empire so the english should get into it get established get a foothold and the scots joined them in this enterprise and without that access to the global slave trading, triangular trade, there's no way that Glasgow would have become the port that it was, and there's no way that the Scottish economy would have developed the way it did. Because from that, wealth comes back to Glasgow. Yeah. Economic development comes to Glasgow. All the trades that we're talking about here, from seafaring, steve dooring, rope making, sail making, textile industries, Who's their market? Who's making the clothes that are on the backs of those slaves? They're made in factories and linen uh, outfits and textile mills all over Scotland. There's even the term Osnaburg cloth, which is the slave cloth. It's produced in Osnaburg and Fife, right? So this is Scottish linen. That industry entirely develops on that basis. Later, other commodities, we, we talked about the first commodities, and that's tobacco is the first one that establishes Scottish presence there, but then sugar becomes the dominant mode after the American Revolution. The Americans, colonists grab their own tobacco back. So that's one of the key drivers for the American War of Independence. So Britain loses that, so Glasgow loses that monopoly, and it switches quickly to sugar. Yeah, yeah, because that, that was, well, obviously around 1778. The big tobacco areas were North Carolina and Virginia, obviously. Because, uh, yes. And bear in mind that many of those colonies were Scots, right? So many of the Scots become Americans and they keep slavery and keep their tobacco plantations. I, I believe Alexander Hamilton was a, a Scottish bookkeeper in the Caribbean before going to America and becoming a founding father. I, I don't know, have the full story on that, but what do you think would be a good result of a, of a broader education about slavery? I mean, is, is it simply a question of informing them so that people have a deeper appreciation? Because a lot of times they think, oh, you're trying to make us feel, me feel bad about my country or da da da. How, how do you see it? In what well, I certainly get that, but we need to just check ourselves a bit. These are not past events. Remember that when we're talking about the abolition of slavery, and obviously we've got a historical memory of being abolitionists of slavery, well, that abolition came out of price and it was paid for by the enslaved Africans themselves because they had to work for five years to pay off the, the, the cost to the public exchequer in Britain. Because remember, at that point, uh, the British government would have been receiving pretty much half of its income from the, the GDP from enslaved uh, commodities. And you're not talking about just sugar, you're talking about tobacco, indigo, um, 
precious stuff for coffee, um, you know, nutmeg, spices, all of those things were all produced by enslaved labor. Uh, so the economy is pretty much dependent on it and all the trades that come with it, you know, the, and then the wealth that's invested in landed aristocratic houses, improvements in agriculture, the creation of textile mills, the more cotton in Robert Owen's mill, where did it come from? It came from enslaved African old plantations. So even the social reformers were using enslaved workers. So, you know, it, it touched and permeated every aspect of the development of Scotland in the Industrial Revolution. Scotland begins as a country which is pretty much an agricultural society prior to slavery in the, in the Americas. After about 50 to 100 years of involvement in slavery, it becomes one of the most economically developed parts of Europe. It has an industrial revolution, it develops the capital for that. Where did it all come from? It comes from slavery. There's no doubt about that. But unfortunately, we've had two mythical narratives that are competing in people's heads about how we tell this story. One of them is the Unionist narrative, which says, oh, we are so like we abolished slavery. We, we stopped slavery, didn't we? And it forgets the 200 years of prior to that when they were the main perpetrators of slavery, you know, literally millions of people. You know, it, roughly, I think, uh, the majority went to the Spanish and Portuguese empires, but after but of the rest of that 50%, 30% of that is to the British islands. So the British were responsible for about one third for the, you know, of the entire slavery in the Americas. So they're responsible for one third of the millions of Africans who are in that continent, sold in slavery by British people. And of those British people, we know from the slavery compensations that 15% of them who got compensation were Scots. Mm -hmm. So Scots were overrepresented compared to the population in that enterprise. And there were some reasons for that to do with the specifics of Glasgow as a, you know, Scotland was a, a country which actually educated its people. So its people were literate. So a, a relatively poor person, if they could get literacy, get skills, could become a doctor or a, a bookkeeper or what they called it euphemistically a surveyor or a conveyor which was basically been a, a slave plantation driver, a slave driver. <laughs> Scots did this, uh, and, but they had the skills to do it. They had the education, the technical ability, and they had the training, and they had universities producing them 10 to a penny. So there were some specific reasons why Scotland was well suited for involvement in that trade. But I suppose for people who are descended from them, and remember, I'm descended from them, <laughs> they're my ancestors. So it's not just the white people are descended. We're all descended from them. We've all got a legacy which comes from this. Just five years ago, I think it was 2015, it was only then that the debt that the British government incurred from compensating the slave owners for their property, it was the equivalent, I think, of £17 billion in today's money. Uh, that was paid over a 200-year debt. It was only finally paid off in 2015. So all of us, if you've been working prior to 2015 and paying taxes, you've been paying off that debt to slave owners. And those slave owners' families still have those mansions, still have that accumulated wealth. So we're paying for that still. We stopped paying for it in 2015. So it's a live question. These wealth and resources are still with us. They're with us in the forms of benevolent funds and scholarships like the Coates family, for example, or the Watt Prize. These monies are still there creating 
philanthropic uh, yeah, yeah. enterprises. But they, they have their origins of slavery, this money. They're still with us, they're still alive, so we're still benefiting from them. So the idea that, oh, it was there, but nothing to me, it is everything to do with you because you're still benefiting from the results of that wealth now. Now, to some extent, I do because I get the chance to go to this university or that educational establishment because I happen to live here. What do you know about the people who were actually granted the land? I mean, I've, I've, I've been going through some of the early colonial charters in the United States, you know, the Virginia Charter of 1606, Massachusetts Bay, et cetera. And, uh, you know, usually the first paragraph is like, you know, uh, you know, uh, it lists the aristocrats or often, I guess, mostly aristocrats. I'm not sure, you know, uh, dukes and, you know, uh, earls and stuff that are granted the land and given a chance to make, you know, make some money off of it. And I think, for example, in Virginia, uh, you know, it was created as a company primarily for tobacco. And then um, and then the venture failed. And so it later became a colony. I think that um, in North Carolina, what was it? seven or eight lords proprietors they were just kind of given that land and given a chance to you know make make some make some money off it and, and a lot from what i understand a lot of times the second or third sons of aristocrats would go would go over would be granted land because they you know because of the laws of primogeniture only the first son could inherit the the estate or the land holdings or whatever in the uk and a lot of times their second or third sons would be sent, uh, sent over. What do you know about what do you know about that? And kind of what maybe what percentage of them were? Uh, were they only given to aristocrats or how, how, what do you know about how that worked? I think this is one of the enduring myths that uh, it was only aristocrats. I mean, it's completely not correct. I mean, the, all the evidence shows that, in fact, Scots, as well as English colonists and other colonists from Europe, uh, were typically sojourners, as they call it. But sojourners are people who intention is not to emigrate to the colony, but to stay in it for a period of time, five to ten years usually, where they would try to make a go of things and make a fortune that they would intend to bring back. Now, sometimes they failed in that venture because they were just bad business people. But uh, for the most part, they would spend five to ten years, they would borrow money, you know, you, credit was expanded, the whole credit, capitalist credit business, and financing of things, Scots pretty much invent that and, and bring it to the Americans. So people who were there were, as you say, usually second and third sons, because they're not going to inherit anything. So they didn't have any wealth yeah. to start with. They're borrowing money from relatives or banks back home, which they have to pay back. And often they have trouble doing so. If you read the histories of the sojourners in the, in the United States, it's very clear that lots of them failed miserably to make money from it. But the ones that did, the prize was you make it big, you go back home, you buy your big mansion house, and you join polite society. So you could make it from nothing and become a wealthy person. And that was what was interesting, is that that process of industrialized capitalist slavery uh, allowed people to upwardly mobile into the establishment and based on their education and skills. And because they were, Scotland was, as you say, a uniquely literate country, uh, with uh, with people churning out technical graduates, uh, clerks and accountants and so on, those people went to America with those skills, uh, which allowed them to exploit the plantation economy to good effect. Yeah, because my own grandfather was a uh, family was uh, were engineers on the Clyde and Govan, and then he uh, in the early 30s, uh, I think he was um, 
uh, he was an he was an engineer on the I think it was on the Merchant Marine, and I've got an actual Indian uh, Indian Empire passport for him. You know, from 1931. You know, I've still got it in my drawer. How is Jamaica governed now? Is there a significant Republican movement? I mean, just tell me a little bit about the the, the legacy of, of colonialism in the politics of Jamaica. I would say that prior to the 1970s, British was the identity of Jamaicans. Jamaicans saw themselves as Brits. <laughs> and the, the, the London was the, the capital of the mother country. So before that, most people didn't really say they were, were, were Jamaican even. The white people certainly would have saw themselves as British. They only really start to become Jamaicans in the 20th century. And gradually as the 1930s comes, we have a, a national movement, just as they did in India and other parts of the British Empire. Uh, Jamaica had a national movement too, and it was influenced by the slave revolts of past centuries. And in particular in 1938, there was a, the equivalent of a slave revolt was the sugar workers. The sugar workers were the main industrial base, and they went on strike, and they were the core that led to the granting of universal suffrage in Jamaica and in a full election in 1944 where democracy starts starts at the time when the, the economies crash, we've got the depression and the British Empire is weak. And that's important to notice that a lot of anti-colonial struggle was boosted during that time. So Jamaica is a typical example of Caribbean anti-colonial struggle against the British Empire. Uh, we formally become semi-independent in 1944 and then become a fully independent country in 1962. But with Queen Elizabeth still as the head of state. Now, um, since at least the 1970s, there's been moves to make Jamaica a republic, and several other Caribbean countries are in fact republics. You know, Trinidad in particular is a good example. So many of the Caribbean islands did remove the British monarch as the head of state. But we've been arguing about that for at least 30 years. That I'm, I'm consciously aware of in Jamaica. There's actually moves just now to do that. Um, you know, there is. It is no longer appropriate to have. Uh, a faraway monarch, but the English Supreme Court is still the last court of appeal for Caribbean people. There was a struggle around getting a Caribbean court of appeals to replace it. You know, one of the main reasons why Jamaican politicians wanted to do that was so they could hang people. <laughs> you know, not not a good reason, but you know, the, but the point is made that we should be independent, fully independent. We're still not quite fully independent. Have there been referendums, or I mean, have there been? I mean, what what what, have, what type of progress has been made towards becoming independent from the UK? Sorry, say that again. What, what what progress has been made? I mean, have there been talk of a referendum? Has there been moves towards that end? Certainly, when I lived on Jamaica in the nineties, there was an active consideration of it, uh, but it was put in the election manifesto of the party that was arguing for it, and they lost. So, uh, and the, the current Jamaica Labour Party government, which is misnamed, it's the Conservative Party in Jamaica, it's pro right-wing politics in America, but they're in government uh, just now, and they actually are thinking of introducing something along those lines. You know, they, they, you know several other Caribbean islands have, have questioned that relationship as well. Uh, so it is being questioned again, and the fact that it's coming even from right-wing people in Jamaica is, is interesting. So I think there's a clear chance of it happening in the, in the near future. And what what are the current demographics in uh, in Jamaica? I mean, I know it's not. I know there's not a, a clear white black cleavage. I mean, you yourself attest to that. But what what are uh, can you talk a little bit about the demographics of? Uh, sure. Uh, essentially, ninety four percent of the population, I say, is African Jamaican, descended from the enslaved African 
heritage. And then of the minorities, we've got uh, about 1% Indian, 1% Chinese. Uh, they, they came in the 20th century and generally were traders. A smaller minority is actually from Arab countries, you know, Lebanon and Syria. And in fact, one of them became the Prime Minister, Edward Siaga was the Prime Minister during the 1980s. He was Lebanese Syrian. Um, so there's a, a community of them. There's also some Jews. I mean, uh, about half a percent of the white population was, was Jewish. And they were often traders and mercantile bankers, that sort of thing. Um, and there's still a Jewish community there today. Uh, you also have the Chinese, massively important in the, in the, in the trading in import exporting uh, they've long been there uh, and they're another minority that has a significant impact input into the jamaican economy there's also of course scots um, there are you know there's been a, a caribbean a caledonian society in scotland for 150 years and they have their well their scottish dancing society too uh, they're getting a bit old now but they are the Caledonian society was quite strong amongst magistrates and judges and lawyers and so on because Jamaican jurisprudence is largely developed from Scottish jurisprudence. So in fact, uh, it's called the High Court of the Justiciary. You know, so uh, that's that's we have the separation between court of session and of justice. We have that separation in the legal system in Jamaica as well. Some of them. The first one deals with uh, a national currency, but um, you know. Yes, I'm in favour of our national currency. I think it's one of the main reasons why we lost the referendum in 2014. Not being clear on that, and I'm very glad. I fought very hard for uh, the Commonwealth idea of fighting on the Growth Commission to make sure that we did not have a long transition towards our own currency. So uh, I'm very glad we were successful. That was one of the most important things that was come out of the National Assembly discussions during 2018. Uh, I'm very glad that uh, we, we won that, that fight. So yes, Scotland should have its own currency straight away from as soon as possible. And we should start preparing for it now by making our national bank uh, denominates. One thing we could do is denominate salaries, public sector salaries in our new currency. That would straight away give it a, a real value. Um, Melanie McCain here is asking, do you have concerns for those now seeking settled status or having settled status, given there's no physical proof? Uh, not quite, same as Rich Slush, but it worries me. You're quite right to worry about it, and it's a point of concern that European Union moment activists have asked me to ask the government about. Um, our government, Scotland's government, should in fact issue letters of comfort to back them up. But obviously they don't have the legal authority to rule on matters of immigration. But I think Scottish government should back up at least to give residents the evidence that they have a legitimate right to be here. Um, obviously, if you've been here prior to January the 1st, you have had the chance to apply for second status. Uh, and most people I know have done that. Uh, but for those who aren't entitled to do that after January the 1st, I think a letter of comment from the Scottish government would be very helpful in order to that they don't lose their jobs and homes and livelihoods. Yeah. I think we should be a bit braver in doing that. Mary Malloy says Scotland still has to face up to, to, to their part in slavery. Very true. Um, Paul O. Santos Jameson has a question. Living in the US, my mum is from Glasgow and I've lived here and I lived there until 78. Wife is Trinidad with Afro-Indian Scottish ancestry. When Scotland becomes independent, will there be recourse for my family to claim citizenship? Uh, the answer to that, I would say undoubtedly, would be yes. Uh, and the reason being is that in the 2014 referendum, we offered a citizenship offer to anybody who had lived in Scotland for 10 years 
even if they weren't living here anymore, if they had lived in Scotland for 10 years, they're automatically entitled to have a Scottish passport. If we'd won in 2014, that would have been the case. Now, I, I can't imagine we won't have at least as generous an offer in this one. I mean, as I say, anybody who wants to be Scottish should be able to. I don't think it should be a restriction. I don't even think there should be a time period. But obviously, that's a thing to be decided uh, in the course of the referendum campaign. But I, I wouldn't like to make it 10 years, but I'd like to make it at least possible if you choose, if you want to be Scottish, you should be able to become a citizen. Always we should look for lessons for today. I do not underestimate the power and the inertia of the Tory unionist anti-independence. What applies today is what needs to be done from Malcolm Hughes. Well, obviously they're, they're, they're being smart. For example, that, that government building they've got in Edinburgh now, where the UK government has got a, a branded building where department members from all departments of the UK government are suddenly in this building, 3,000 civil servants. So they're making a concerted effort to show that brand UK loyalty, that, that, that there's going to be a lot more UK government branded stuff now that is going to be labelled so that people think about us. So yes, they're going to be hard and clever and we're going to have to be equally clever to outfox them. But I don't think that people, people aren't stupid. They realise that when they're being dis disrespected, you see that every week in Parliament when our MPs are uh, our bollocks down there, sorry to swear, but it's uh, very frustrating sometimes to watch them have to put very good points and arguments across defending Scotland's interests, and they do give it loudly, they certainly do. And you know, I mean, last week, I mean, Stuart Hosey told me that we had 71 speeches by SNP MPs in Parliament just during that week in intervening on debates. So, but obviously, the media is not covering our interventions and not covering the strong stance we're putting up in Scotland's interests, um, and that's not being covered in the media. So we can expect that. We've always had that already, but despite the media's blockade of what we're doing, we're winning the argument on independence. So uh, I'm what, fully confident. We... It's clearly part of the power grab, isn't it? They're pre actively preparing for the power grab. That is a seat of colonial government, and as people have put it, put it quite rightly, we, when we're able to safely protest, we should close them down because uh, they're an occupation government. Uh, they have no legitimate mandate. They are trampling over the devolution settlement, over areas which are clearly devolved in the settlement, uh, and that's what they're doing. They're trying to reverse the, the effects of devolution. Uh, you know, that's pretty straightforward, and it's pretty straightforward. They could be resisted by us and by the people. How do we ch how do we change the curriculum regarding history our children are taught? Uh, that's fairly straightforward. Uh, the Scottish government controls the curriculum, and therefore, uh, through the SQA and through the what they call the National Curriculum Learning Outcomes, we we've argued and we passed a motion in our council in Glasgow to support the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights campaign to change the learning outcomes in the national curriculum uh, standards for what we expect kids to learn. So one of those outcomes should be uh, a knowledge and understanding of the slavery and colonial legacy of Scotland. So that we could easily change that by changing the, the parameters of the national curriculum. And is that something that would be particularly controversial, do you think? I mean, in America, whenever you talk about stuff like, you know, teaching cer certain things a certain way, I mean, with regard, I don't know whether it's evolution or, you know, other, I mean, they just people just come out of the woodwork to oppose it. Knowing Scott's pretty well, I can't really see the same problem, but maybe you could comment to that because it's... Well, my experience over the last five or six years, and indeed, doing radio and television and newspaper stuff is that people's response to it is that 
they want to know more. They want to know why they didn't learn it. They want to know, are their children learning it? And why aren't they learning it? That's been the majority uh, experience of mine, that most people are, are, have a thirst for knowledge about this and want to learn and want their kids to know. Um, sure, there'd be people who are opposed to that, but uh, my experience has been that the majority want to know because it's all part of knowing Scotland's history. And indeed, Scotland's history is not properly taught to Scottish people. And even when we talk about slavery, we generally talk about England's ports, uh, London and Bristol, uh, Liverpool's access to this Atlantic slave trade. We very rarely talk about the Glasgow side of it. Now, part of the reason for that was very few history books before 15 years ago about this. Now there's a wealth of scholarship from Scotland about Scotland's role in it. So we can now tell that transatlantic story from a Scottish perspective in a way perhaps we, we couldn't do before. But now we have no excuse. We've got the scholarship, we've got the history, we've got the research. It just now needs to be put in the curriculum and made examinable. This is the other thing that history teachers don't have that in their curriculum when they're learning their history degree. So we need to make sure that that curriculum goes right up to the top of the tertiary level as well. Plebiscider section 30, we, when we were speaking last time, you were, you were making it pretty clear that the, the Scottish government has made it pretty crystal clear that they're, they're, you know, they're planning for a referendum, they've legislated for it. Uh, but I mean, you, you know, everybody I talk to is anxious. They don't know, you know, is Boris going to be able to you know, I, I interviewed Brendan McNeil the other day. He's like, you know, Boris Johnson, there's no way he's granting a Section 30. How do you see it? And, and how do you see the state of play at this point? I've always seen it as uh, dependent on the circumstances in which we hold the vote. Uh, we are now outside the EU. So first of all, the EU partners now don't give a shit what the British government thinks anymore about when it comes to Scotland. So that's the first thing their attitude to it has changed. Secondly, the American government yeah. has now changed. Yeah. So uh, their attitude to it is going to be singularly different too, I believe. Um, Biden has a history of supporting Irish unity and the peace agreements and everything and either. So uh, we've got, the, in terms of the recognition of our vote, and this is the key thing, it's not so much whether it's recognized by Johnson, Actually, I think that's a bit of a red herring. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it would be nice because we set the example before of having an agreed referendum. And the reason why that was important was because we want no voters to actually vote in our referendum so that it's seen as legitimate by both sides of the argument. By having the Edinburgh Agreement last time between Salmond and uh, Cameron, it meant that it, the result was going to be recognised without any disputes. The problem of having a vote that's not recognised by the other side is that we could have the Catalan situation where all the yes voters turn up no voters boycott it and then it's not recognized I, I want our vote to be recognized so it's not so much whether it's recognized by boris it's whether it's recognized by our international partners mm -hmm. and so if we're seen to at least have a, a, a ballot that a vote that's as legitimate as the one we already previously had and that's what it's got to match its legitimacy so in my view we set the precedent that the, the people of scotland are sovereign they decide it must be them who votes uh, i'm not in favor of us declaring udi because uh, we don't have a mandate for that people vote for the SNP or vote for pro-independence parties who don't necessarily support independence. I mean, I think about 80% of SNP's voters support independence, but 20% of them don't. And likewise, 
up to 30% of Labour voters do support independence. So it's, it's why it has to be a vote specifically a referendum on independence. So I'd ideally like the section 30, but I, you know, but the fact is we've, we've made the legal situation possible so that we can at least hold the referendum. If a plebiscite, I suppose it depends what you mean by that, but if you, I'm assuming that's what CAP means. Uh, therefore, um, I would say that Obviously, the SNP is going to go into that election pledged to have a referendum. I likely the Greens will as well. I'm sure they will. Uh, so there will be a pro-independence majority in that parliament, ideally an SNP majority, because I think that is the only one that will be taken seriously by our opponents down in London, uh, which is the thing that I think would force them to have a Section 30. After all, it was Alec getting a majority in 2011 that forced Cameron to concede the Section 30. And I think it's going to be true again you know Boris is going to say no now of course they all did Cameron did too you know, you know that's only 10 years ago but Cameron conceded it because we won a majority okay and this would this would presumably be enunciated in the um in the in the manifesto of the SNP. yes it will I will be uh, I, I, uh, I I hope to be interviewing Keith Brown next week at some point, and he's the principal. I think he's the principal one. And, and Angus McNeil told me he's the principal one to talk to about that because he's developing the manifesto. And so, uh, can we presume that there will be some will be a, a, an engagement to the refer, to a referendum in the manifesto? I would say you're ninety nine percent certain that it will. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's what every one of us on the NEC wants, it's what everybody in the party wants, and it's obviously what people in the independence of the S movements want. Uh, we, we, you know, if it hadn't been for COVID, and the, the, people often ask me, when do you think that Nicola is planning to have the referendum? When's she going to hold it? When's she going to hold it? Yeah. And you know, if it hadn't been for COVID, uh, I think we could have had it previously. We could have already been in the campaign in 2019. Yeah. We were half expecting Brexit to be finished in 2018 and half expecting a general election at Westminster by then. But things took much longer than we all expected. I think it's reasonable to say to people, well, it's understandable if people weren't able to make a decision about independence again until they knew what the situation with Brexit was, what kind of Brexit we were going to have. You know, it was reasonable for people also to know our status, whether we're in the EU or not. You know, and, you know and I, now they know just how bad and damaging it actually is. Yeah, they, the they fishing industry. With some certainty what they're voting to stay in if they want to stay in the union, but they also know clearly what they will get from us in terms of what kind of independence. It's now clear you you either independence and go fighting to rejoin Europe or you're on Brexit Island floating away into the Atlantic. So it's a clear choice now, which we, it's reasonable now to ask people to choose again. In one of the documents, I think I mentioned this last time, I think it was over the, the, the Scottish Investment Bank or the Scottish, uh, Reserve, the Scottish Reserve Bank, I forget what, but, but they, they, they've got a timeline, you know, down, I think it's the 27th of September that they, they have in this document. I mean, can we bank on that? There will, that there will be something in September? Because as, as Alison Clark mentions, uh, Angus McNeil said there was no, be, no referendum this year. That's actually not what he said. He said no one could guarantee that there would be a referendum this year. Yeah, you couldn't guarantee it for sure. Uh, that, that's probably correct. But it's not impossible to have it this year. Uh, you know, if we do get the vaccine out and we clear the, the, the worst of the COVID uh, crisis, if we begin to basically recover and are able to orientate back, if, and of course, if we win the May elections, uh, you know, we're going to win that. So we win the election, we get a majority, then I, I don't see why we should wait around. 
we, we've been you know 19 polls in a row with an independence majority we've got the right conditions uh, we've got increasing confidence and we're getting more of a drift of both Labour and even some Tory and Lib Dem voters towards independence so the fact is it's moving in our direction all the time and I think we, we need to strike within the referendum while the iron's still hot. So it could be this year but personally I'm not so bothered if it's this year or moves into next year as long as it happens you know and I, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. I've been hypothesizing for a while because I know that for example Sturgeon and the Welsh First Minister and they've all held meetings with Michel Barnier. I just wonder if, dreaming out loud, but the idea that Scotland says, okay, we're going to have a referendum, you know, if we win, we're going to have a referendum. And then if, if the SNP does win, or even just before, the EU says, we will, we will recognize your independence. I'm just wondering if, uh, do you think that there could be some? I can't say I have any specialist knowledge about that, but from the European experts I have heard speak about this subject, there is pretty much universal support for Scotland to come back in for obvious reasons because we've got assets and and uh, things that they they would like back in the union and also the very fact that we're enthusiastic about European being Europeans uh, they they need some of that so I'm absolutely convinced that yes they that governments will support Scotland coming back in and they will support and defend Scotland's vote. If, if we have it. I'm not so sure if they will intervene before we have the vote, but they have less of a reason to worry about the British government's attitude because they're and interfering in, a, in the foreign affairs of a, of, of a domestic matter now that yeah. they're outside the yeah. EU. Yeah. They don't have to give a damn what they say now. And I think that several countries will indeed. Yeah. Well, see, well, I can't I, say I know which ones would and which ones wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I think because Spain has said basically that, you know, you know, a lot, a lot was made about the Spanish veto of, of, of Scotland's entry. But they said, you know, if, if Scotland becomes independent by a constitutional method, then they have no problem with it. They consider Catalonia a completely different issue. The more they alienate the EU and try to get the EU to be blamed for everything that's wrong in Britain, the more the EU is going to be inclined towards Scottish independence. So I, I, let them keep doing what they're doing. It's only going to work in our favour. Does Graham think that the cavalry, i.e. EU and USA, will come to Scotland's rescue? Pure, well, I think we just answered that, really. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, I, I, in my view, it's very likely. It's in, it's in the EU's interest to pretty much immediately accept Scotland as a, as a member state. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it be, and, may, and maybe even Irish, uh, Irish reunification, you know, given... I would say that's Biden's opinion. He wants Irish unification. But the, the, the thing about Scotland's independence, though, is that we may come under pressure to stay in NATO, stay in the nuclear uh, submarine alliance and patrol the North Sea on behalf of Anglo and European American uh, interests. So that's we're going to come under some pressure on that front uh, from America. But I, I think they will recognize us as well. I guess the, the, this last question kind of ties into that. Do you think the Scottish government is willing to give up a percentage of shared assets to quicken the end of the the ending of the union. Um, well, we offered that, didn't we? Um, we actually offered that in 2014. We offered it in 2016 when we were talking about this stuff. So it, it's not news, and indeed, it's there in the uh, Growth Commission report. Although, in my view, far too generous. But what they call a, a solidarity pact, where we pay a percentage of the UK debt as part of. Uh, using their currency for a while and having their interest rate policy. I, I'm not in favour of that, but it, but there's no, no reason why. The, the simplest way would be they just give Scotland a percentage of the government-owned assets, wherever they are in the UK, 
they could just give us 12.5% of it because our economy is 12.5% of the UK economy. So if they, they could just simply, we're responsible for 12.5% of the assets and of the liabilities. That would be the easiest way to do it. But that would mean the Scottish government would own lots of stuff in England and Wales. <laughs> so uh, maybe they might want, want that. So they might want to give up the stuff that they own in Scotland by that deal. So we'll have to do swaps. I, I reckon it would be quite easily sorted out, especially once we've had a vote. But yeah, we need to be willing to give up some assets. Uh, you know, in exchange, we'll get some. So I'm not so bothered about how we do it, um, but I think we will end up doing something like that. Okay, um, so I'd like to just uh, uh, wrap it up and just, uh, you know, returning to our main theme of the, of the evening's discussion regarding slavery. How should Scots perceive their role in the slave trade? Is it, is, I mean, I mean, it's too simplistic to say, oh, they should feel guilty. Oh, I'm so sorry for what my, you know, what, are, what are you looking for in terms of Scott's understanding of their role? Guilt isn't actually a very helpful emotion in these, in these circumstances. What's more helpful and productive is actually an acknowledgement. Acknowledgement leads to atonement. Atonement leads to awareness raising, and I'd like to say properly raised so that people understand what enslavement means. And it's not the same thing as whether it's a bonded labor or indenture it, you know, you're still humans in those systems chattel slavery was a system where people became things and that was what unique was introduced it's a form of slavery that did not exist in certainly not with industrialized capitalism and that's what's new to it so let's not compare say the highland clearances or the irish famine as i have often heard people do it's those are terrible things in their own right. It actually cheapens the memory of those events in their own right as awful historical experiences to compare and trade off the hierarchies of which is worse. That's wrong to do that. This is a unique historical experience that we carried on doing for, you know, I think in a period of 250 years that Britain was involved in it, and then the aftermath of colonialism. So a total of 400 years of this unequal relationship. What it does, as you've seen what it does in the Highlands, if in the Highlands we saw how that oppression and concentration of ownership in the hands of lairds led to the clearing of people from the land, uh, well, imagine that being done also in West Africa. You know, people were literally kidnapped for hundreds of years and taken forcibly over the other side of the world. What do you think it did to the economy of West Africa over generations? And, you know, we're still living with the losses of population and of economic development still now. The post-colonial period only very briefly started to reverse that period. And then we set up neo-colonial structures where these countries got into debt, never having you know, properly, uh, you know, compensated them for the losses they had from colonialism and slavery. So we've got to change that relationship. So one of the things we can do is we can make reparative justice by training and educating the hospitals. You know, we could dedicate university. We could help resource the big universities in West Africa to keep their archives, for example, which are all about their connection with Britain. So we could help them to build those, use our expertise to help them build their economies up. So that's the best way we can help because it's not just about money. We talk about reparation, not reparations. Yeah. Reparations, you know, we often talk about the compensation. Now, money is part of it, but frankly, in terms of raw money, it's such a huge sum of money that it couldn't possibly be paid back by all the developed countries that benefit from saving. So what we can say is what can be reasonably and meaningfully done, obviously wipe off all the debts of these 
poor middle-income and low-income countries, but we should be helping them to economically develop. Short, you know, let's shorten that, um, you know, help them get you know, secure renewable energy, help them not have to use fossil fuels, use our technological advantage, transfer it, uh, use our skilled nurses, doctors, technicians, etc., etc., to help build up their economies. That's the best thing we can do for repar reparations. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on in the United States the Gilded Age, you know, post, you know, after after prebellum slavery was abolished, and then you know, well, at least through the early 1900s. But when we learn about and then you know what's inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, give us your huddled masses, etc., we're, we're thought, oh, well, they came to get a, to have a better life. But what I've been learning in watching archives and documentaries, etc., is that so many you know millions of, of people that came over, especially during the late 19th century, you know, from Italy, from Eastern Europe, and you know, from Scotland and Ireland as well. They came to Ellis Island or whatever, and then they were taken basically, you know, oh, somebody would say, oh, we've got a job for you. They were taken to West Virginia, for example, and then in basically, uh, you know, basically um, in coal camps, you know, where they were just work, worked to work to the bone. I mean, in horrific working conditions, uh, you know, and a lot of times they would take people who were from Eastern Europe simply because they, they couldn't speak the language so they could be work more. Uh, and then they would, you know, have be paid in company script that they could only spend at the company store. They had to buy the explosives that they would use to to get the coal or whatever mineral. They had to buy it themselves from their pay. And and there was also the the whole legacy of convict lease as well, particularly in the South, where uh, you know you had the law like vagrancy laws and this type of thing, which ba which basically served to re-enslave, uh, where people could be arrested for just being walking down the road. Or you know, and and then and then sent to you know sent to jail. They wouldn't be able to pay the fine, so they would be sent, sentenced to three years uh, hard labor. You know, uh, on a on a chain gang. Uh, you know, uh, working in a coal mine where you know clearing, and that's a lot of how America was built. So, could you distinguish between that this you know kind of the prebellum slavery where people were owned, but this more even in some ways more, they're, they're both awful. I mean, I know you talk about the hierarchies, but I mean, because a lot of times the, you know, for example, with convict lease, these people, uh, they, they, it was like they were rented rather than owned. So the, at, least, at least with the prebellum, they had an interest in keeping the slave alive because it was their property. But after this, you know, in the late 19th century, these people, you know, were, were, were enslaved, uh, you know, particularly with convict lease, but they, but they, but their lives weren't even valued as property. Um, perhaps I'm, I'm not really sure how, how to respond to it. My knowledge of that, uh, of uh, Highlands pop stuff is, is, is not great. So I can't really speak any, with any expertise on it. Um, I, but I would say that it's pretty clear that the forms of exploitation and uh, inequality you know, America was a society based upon slavery, so of course it had ways of labour exploitation, even with waged slavery, which were waged slavery, and sometimes it was pretty much near the same thing. If you were a sharecropper in the southern United States, you were eventually paying a form of debt which was impossible to ever pay back. And white and black sharecroppers shared that, but actually black ones were worse. So, so their lives were practically slavery. And of course, prison labor system in America is slave labor because they they use it for quite a lot of industrial processes, you know, to manufacture things and to 
do that and everything. So it's a, it's not a, an incorrect observation. Okay. Well, we'll wrap it up on a positive note. We've got some nice. Uh, th thanks for your contribution, Graham, uh, Susan, uh, Susan Campbell. Uh, we've been. Uh, th this has been super interesting. Thanks, Mark and Graham, and very interesting topic. Thanks to us both. So. Uh, Folks, I want to just say I've posted in this post uh, a meeting that's happening on Saturday. The S&P Bain Network is hosting a, a debate about Trump and the end of you know, Biden coming in. We talk about Black Lives Matter, racism, the threat of far-right terror in the United States. So I've got two African-American speakers, uh, Jeanette Davidson from the University of Oklahoma, and Ronnie Harris, who's a community organizer in Chicago. Jeanette was born in Scotland, uh, and Ronnie lived in Scotland and went to Aberdeen University for quite a while. Uh, he he's works in the same area that Barack Obama uh, was active as a Southside Chicago community. And Kat Carey, who's a member of the SNP here, she's a member of Democrats Abroad, so she's the other panelist. So we'll get a, a good American uh, perspective of what's going on. So that's on Saturday evening at six o'clock. Okay, well, thank you so much. And to be honest, uh, this is, I mean, we, we always have fascinating discussions, but this is one of the most, this this. Up, up there in terms of the fascinating sessions we've had, and I've uh, and I have to say I've, I've uh, both the fact that you are uh, definitely a candidate and the fact that you have indicated that it's 99% certain that there will be, you know, a, a promise for a referendum in the SNP manifesto coming up. That's uh, very very reassuring. So just th thank you so much, uh, Graham, for, for for speaking with us this evening. You're welcome, Mark, and okay. thanks to everybody for listening.